Welcome back one last week to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 111, which begins with paint foreman Mike Costello and ends with lighting lead. I keep wanting to read it as lightning lead, but no, it's lighting <laughs> lead Betsy Mueller. Uh, it's just going to be us for these last five minutes as we close out the season. It's been a crazy ride, but here we are at the last week. Crazy. I cannot believe that we have talked through up to this point 110 minutes about Thor. Um, it's wild. But here we are. And that's kind of where I wanted to start, because we're in the middle of the credits, which we definitely do want to talk some about, but it's kind of a good time for kind of wrap up and stuff. And we've kind of said this in some version or another, but just kind of put the final cap on it. What's kind of your overall thoughts on this movie now that you've seen all of it in this much detail and with, uh, you know, picking it apart this much? Yeah, no, it's it's um, I'm glad to revisit it. Um I, I think I talked about this briefly back when we were doing our kind of like intro episode that we did at the end of Iron Man 2 season. You know, I had worked on a script for a Thor movie, not with Marvel or Disney, but just, <laughs> it was a very, very independent movie that a, a friend of mine uh, who sadly recently passed away, but he had been working on kind of, you know, one of those low budget movies that would come out <laughs> ideally right at the time when Thor was coming out mm-hmm. uh, to just kind of like bank on the fact that Thor was in the name. And it was a script called Thor and the Mighty Dave. And it was about a kid who had Thor as his imaginary friend and Thor was going to be played by Kevin Sorbo. And it was this whole uh, thing that we were kind of putting together and it never got off the ground. Um, but it would have been a very low budget thing with very little of Kevin Sorbo because, you know, he was the name, but you know, he was basically the script was designed for him to be there for like two days. Right. But anyway, in the process of writing the script, I did all sorts of research on Thor and it was very much more the Norse Thor, not the comic Thor, which we very specifically had to avoid because of all the rights and everything. And so I really had a lot of fun getting to know this character and the stories that uh, involved him and kind of the trouble he got in and all about his goats and just everything. <laughs> like, it was just such a crazy character. And I, I really had fun. And and I enjoyed the movie. I didn't love the movie. I think when I saw it, I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's another yeah. superhero movie. It didn't wow me or anything. Um, but I, I enjoyed I, I think what I, I came away with was I really enjoyed the characters and it was nice to see them really continue them and grow them in, in strong ways. And as we've talked about in the show, it's a little disappointing that they didn't have Natalie Portman back very often uh, in the entire MCU. I'm glad that she is coming back, but I it's thrilling to have seen Eric kind of continuing for as much as he did and Darcy coming back. And the, what they've done with the, kind of the Asgardians like Loki and Odin and Frigga even. Uh, so I, I've, I don't know, I've really grown to, um, well, I, I still wouldn't put this kind of like as one of my favorite films of the MCU. I, yeah. I have so much more appreciation for it now. And I'm really glad that I kind of walked through it this way. Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, and I, I say this with all respect to English teachers. I think English classes can be great, but I've always been a big believer in that adage of, you know, uh, I I don't like English class because I love literature. Like, and, you know, the, the concept of like reading a great book is a lot of fun and like analyzing it to death can often take the joy out of it. Not always, again, English teachers, you're doing great jobs out there, but um, just, you didn't go to any of my schools that I went to. <laughs> um, but this, I feel like, is is the flip side, where, yeah, I think I watched it, and I was like, okay, that was fun. There was some interesting stuff, but a lot of the fight scenes I didn't really go for. Some of the stuff seemed very overdone. 
But then when we really kind of pick it apart in detail, and I'm able to see like just all these little choices, and I'm able to understand it all in more context, you know, and it's, it kind of goes back to this interesting question of, like, I think I, I learned so much about the movie and I came to really appreciate and understand the, the context and the, and the, and the characters and, and so much that was gone into it. You know, I lived in Ireland for a year where James Joyce is either a national hero or a national pariah, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> the guy who wrote Ulysses, among other things. And he once said that, like, and I don't know the exact wording, but he said something along the lines of, like, no one should ever just casually read one of my books. You have to dedicate your life to understanding my books. And I think if you can, apparently the people who do that, like love and adore everything he wrote, it's kind of a high bar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it kind of leaves me with an interesting thought of like, I think that this is a movie where if you really go into this much depth and you know all of this, like, I think the next time I watch it, I'm going to enjoy it so much more than I ever have. And it might become one of the sort of most enjoyable MCU movie watching experiences I have. Sure. I don't know though, like, you know, and I'm not a film critic, but it get it, it kind of gets back to this interesting question of like, should you have to go through that much analysis to be able to enjoy a movie as much as we now do with Thor? So, yeah, right, yeah, right. it's kind of like I, I think I'm I'm kind of end up where you are. Like, I I think it is now a lot higher in my estimation than it used to be. I think Loki and Natalie Port and and Natalie Portman's version of Jane Foster are the two characters that both have a much greater appreciation for. Um, though also it just makes me a lot sadder about Padme and the prequels, <laughs> recognizing <laughs> that no, Natalie Portman really can do so much better. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's, I'm not sure I'm going to be wild to re, to rewatch it, but it, if nothing else, it has me now so excited about Thor Love and Thunder because I feel like there's like, you know, we were talking about wanting to see Natalie Portman more, wanting to see, uh, we're obviously not going to get the Warriors three, but like, Seeing where all this started, now I'm really curious to see what the next chapter of Thor's story is going to be and Jane's story is going to be. Yeah, right, right. No, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how that uh, develops. And especially because I was like, I, I love Taika Waititi as a director. I think he is just such a creative force. And I love just kind of everything he's done with the Marvel Cinematic Universe outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think that he's just a very creative storyteller. I and I, you know I know there are so many decisions getting made about stories outside of each of these directors' controls as far as like whatever Feige is doing, but I can't help but feel like it was really disappointing to not have Jane appear in Thor Ragnarok. Like there was just it was it was an Asgard story, right? It it just very much didn't focus on anything going on back uh, back on Midgard, and uh, so you know I. I guess I just it would have been really nice to kind of have those characters from Thor continue. But I mean, I get it. He's a galactic character. Even all the comics don't involve Midgard all the time. It's not a Midgard centered story as much as it is an Adgar, Asgard one. And so I, I get it. I appreciate it. But I can't help but feel like, gosh, I wish that we were able to kind of continue those characters. Um, but still, it, it, it's nice to know that now Taika Waititi is bringing her back, especially because of the way that that character of, of Jane Foster has kind of evolved in the comics. Uh, so it'll be interesting. And I have to say, I'd never really thought of it before, but in some ways that's not even about this movie. That's the MCU in general. You know, they don't like continuing love stories. Um, uh, like to me, I think Natalie Portman as Jane Foster is somewhat wasted, but if you tell me who's the female love interest character 
like who you most wish you'd seen more of, it's Haley Atwell as you know uh, Agent Carter. And granted, she got her she got her TV show, which which died off before we would have liked it. Now there's um you know she she's now appearing as as uh okay what was the name of it uh Captain Cap it's not Captain Carter it's not Captain kind of totally uh Carter um. You don't know. But my point is like, and, and granted, yeah. because the age thing, it sort of made sense that it couldn't happen. Like, so she's not part of Captain America's story going forward. There's fun stuff between Tony Stark and Pepper Potts when they're still kind of in that tension. Will we, won't they date? But then like, you know, for a lot of the time that they're in a relationship, she is completely off screen. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree with you with Natalie Portman. But I also think I, I wonder if this was like a Falone. An, a, a Feige like MCU overall decision that just we don't want to have continuing relationships on screen because which is too bad I think because I think that's that's a, a fun part of characters and I guess Ant-Man and the Wasp we've definitely had that going forward but with a lot of them it's just you know once, once the relationship kind of gets worked out the woman character gets kind of written off yeah and just to confirm it is Captain Carter Captain Carter okay thank you because even in Ant-Man they don't treat them as a couple so much as as a duo right right and and so there's an interesting element that they like the teams but they don't necessarily want the romance and it's kind of the same with villains right it's like let's get them out of there it's like ah, the villain's already been there and has has kind of done their thing and they're just less interesting now i mean i mean loki is really the one who has come back and uh between here and uh, Avengers and uh, I mean, not necessarily the primary villain in the next two Thor films, but certainly is up to his, you know, old habits in both of those films. Right. And then, of course, the TV show, which really, you know, it's following the Avengers Loki in kind of a different timeline. And so it's I don't know, it's a it's a very interesting and kind of frustrating element. And I, I feel like there is such i don't know I, I think people love a good love story and there's no reason to not let us have that i don't know perhaps some of it is like learning from stuff like star wars where you know i mean by the time we get to return of the jedi you know the han solo uh leia relationship like there's you know we're I don't know that that wasn't necessarily everybody's favorite part of the story, right? And so maybe right. maybe they're trying to just kind of avoid that sort of stuff. But I don't know. Yeah, it, it's such a it's such a hard thing because I certainly know there's a lot of MCU. There is an element to which a lot of action movies and comic book movies you often sort of feel like there has to be a romance. Just it has to be a part of the movie, and and that can fall into some kind of sexist tropes, especially when the woman character isn't really developed beyond just being the love interest who will scream in a pretty way when she's captured by the villain. Yeah, I think the James Bond franchise and, and the 80s really set us up for that. Right? Yes, very much, <laughs> very much so. And 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 like certainly some of the Spider-Man movies very much did that. Like just the the difference between the Zendaya versus the Kirsten Dunst, you know, the level of agency those two actresses got to have as, as Spider-Man love interests was wildly different. Uh, and I, I think I, there's a lot of the MCU movies that I think I've praised for for not just shoehorning in a romance just to have a romance, you know? But I think you're right that it sometimes become when you did have some of these characters who were established as much more than romantic leads. And, you know, I think we talked at the very end of this movie that we were a little frustrated that Jane was kind of seemingly being like that now all of her research was just can I get the cute guy back instead of all this fascinating scientific research we did. And so, like, I wouldn't have wanted to see more of that, but I 
but yeah, she's a great character. Um, you know, uh, Captain Carter, Agent Carter was a was a fantastic character. Pepper Potts even was a great character that I think didn't got used enough. So well, and that uh, you know, uh, we'll talk about this in in just a couple minutes. But how what would the shape of things have been if it was Jane that we saw in the last couple minutes coming to meet? Uh, Nick Fury down in the bowels uh, of, yeah. the, of that building rather than Eric. Because uh, largely that makes more sense, right? <laughs> Would it make more uh-huh. sense to have Jane be the one who, I mean, she's the fo- the one behind the foster theory and here she is coming right. to have this this meeting. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I don't know if that falls to Natalie Portman's disinterest. Uh, mm-hmm. th- you know, her, her price tag was too high as compared to Stellan Skarsgård. Her schedule is too busy. Like, there are so many things that we just don't know. Or maybe, you know, that particular writer who wrote that particular script um, was not that keen on introducing uh, another strong female character, which also could be. It's certainly possible. Um, I, I, The most charitable reading I can give is that, you know, you already have the character of Hawkeye who becomes sort of, you know, he becomes mind-controlled by Loki and and Black Widow obviously cares a lot about him. And so you get this great character moment of her, like, she doesn't just want to kill him because she knows that, like, there's a good person there who's mind-controlled. And so you get that, that sort of moment where the villain is not actually a bad person. They're just controlled. And so our hero wants to save them, not kill them. I mean, one thing I think is interesting is that no one's ever really concerned about rescuing Eric because he's not that important to anybody in the movie except to maybe Thor. Um, and I think, I think if Jane was the person controlling it, you now have this added thing of Thor wanting to save her, which I think would have been a really interesting story beat. I think it might have like kind of stepped on the Hawkeye Black Widow story beat or felt too similar to that. So I guess my most charitable reason is that's maybe why not to include it. So you don't feel like you're repeating that same dynamic. But you're right. It also, like, would have made a lot more sense if it was her. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot to a, a lot to unpack when we get to um, that movie a few uh, – <laughs> in a couple seasons, yeah. Definitely. Um, so what were – I had it in here as your favorite parts, but I think I want to add it, ask you a little differently – are there parts of this movie that you feel like you have a completely new appreciation or understanding of? Or like now the next time you watch it, you're like, oh, yeah, that because of the things we learned or the things we discussed? Um, well, just on, on kind of a, a, a macroscopic view of things, absolutely Loki and his plotting and planning. Like I really enjoyed kind of like looking more closely at him. Um, but I think uh, as much as Heimdall and Idris Elba was was we'll just kindly say modestly used in the film. Uh, I just I really fell in love with everything having to do with Heimdall's observatory and just the way that it works yeah. and the design and every time we're in there it's just it's like there's some other cool thing to be kind of watching how how it works. It's just such an interesting location that they designed very specifically for the film and I, I just it became one of my favorite places to just kind of like go back to. So that's that would probably be one thing for me. I, I think for me it's probably I mean it's certainly a lot of the set stuff if like I learned so much more about there were so many things I enjoyed so much, but I think especially when we had Austin Titchener, the, the person who runs the Reduce Shakespeare Company and had so much to say about like picking out the, the Shakespearean dynamics in this. I, it just felt like it, it made me want to go back and rewatch all the Henrys, among other things, which I've still not got a chance <laughs> to do, but hopefully we'll get a chance to do some point. But I feel like, yeah, it just makes me really want to um, – uh, I, I think the next time I watch the movie when I'm seeing some of those, especially when it's Odin, Loki, and Thor all together – 
I'm going to have such a, such a greater understanding of what's happening there. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of things. You know, something else that I that struck me more watching it this time is how funny uh, uh, Natalie Portman is throughout the film. Like, she's she's yeah. got some great comedy chops, and I think there are a lot of little moments that she is uh, given to uh, really shine. So, very fun. She's willing to do something that I think a lot of actors and actresses have trouble with, which is a lot of her best comedy beats are kind of inviting the audience to laugh at her, you know, but not in a like mean mocking way, but in a kind of like, like some of the moments of her being like over the top in in her shyness around this gorgeous man or in her like being so, you know, the she hits him with a car and just the, the ridiculousness of some of that. Like, I think she played it so well. I was willing to kind of do it a little bit of self-deprecating humor that I really appreciated. Yeah, like when she's on the roof and she's like, yeah, I come up here to get away from Darcy or when I want to do some research or I come up here a lot. You know, just kind of like, you know, making fun of kind of like how truly like nerdy and scientific she is. It's just kind of it, it is fun. Um, is there one thing that have, having gone through this whole movie in this much depth, do you think there's one thing that you would change if you got to be, you know, it, being being uh, Kenneth Branagh instead of being John Malkovich, um, <laughs> what would be the one thing that you would have done differently about making this movie? You know, that's a good question. I think looking at the film uh, has given me a totally different appreciation of the Warriors Three and Sif, and like those characters. I think, I, I mean, having read some of them in the comics, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on them by any stretch, but having read some of them in the comics, I I find them to be you know tailored for the younger readers, but enjoyable enough. And we've talked to enough guests now, uh, especially like Miles and Elizabeth when they were on, like uh, talking to guests who have a, a strong passion for those characters who really kind of uh, showed me, you know, that there there's a lot more to these characters. And this, the, the script, I, I think it, it's something that happened in the writing of the characters that really latched onto that childish kind of goofiness of the characters that didn't allow them to really shine. And because of that, when Brana was directing it and editing it, I had a feeling that he's just like, God, there's just too much of this silliness with these things. Let's just cut more of that. And I, I think for me, that's one thing that I would change is finding a way to write the Warriors 3 to really develop them as kind of a, a core team on, on Thor's side so that we could have really continued them in the subsequent films. I, I think that's true. I think I think my the kind of big thing I would do is it felt like there was just kind of an inconsistency that they never really resolved of are these kind of the childish like uh, comic relief characters are they do they fit somewhere into the because I could also see like taking it the more Shakespearean aspect that they're kind of the Rosencrantz Guildenstern or that they're the like the, the Falstaff kind of characters where there's comedy but they're also kind of a, a Greek chorus aspect to them and yeah it, ju- it just felt like they never quite resolved what they were doing with those characters yeah, yeah. so I think I, I would have loved to see that and then just you're right. Idris Elba is not enough used, but just the man has such gorgeous eyes. Take out the damn contact lenses. Let us see his beautiful eyes. It, both because just I think it's beautiful on screen, but also when you have a character who's so reserved, he is so good at acting with his eyes that I do feel like if it hadn't been for contacts, I would he would have been able to be even more expressive in some of those scenes. And see, that's something I, that doesn't bother me. I actually have no mm. problem with the color of his eyes. I think that it's actually an interesting uh, choice to have his eyes look that way, so I don't. I don't have an issue with that, but I can. I certainly uh, understand the you know, <laughs> your your reasoning. <laughs> There's a thirst aspect there for sure, but I and I kind of want. I think today instead of it being just contacts, you probably could have had him like. There's some CGI thing, so he would have been able to have, be, have more expressive eyes, even with the, the eye color change. But sure. 
Who yeah. knows? Yeah. Um, and then I, I just have in my notes, good God, when will this song end? I know. Um, <laughs> just doesn't stop. It's like, come on, enough of the Foo Fighters. We've heard the song in the bar, which was plenty. We don't need to hear it in the credits. And unfortunately for us, it plays through this whole minute still. <laughs> so we're like, uh-huh. come on. Uh, All right. So let's talk about some of the actual credits themselves. Um, there are a lot of people driving to help make this movie. And we get a list of who the drivers are. And this is just in New Mexico. And it's probably a good 20 or 30 names. And, and I think when I think of a driver in a movie credit, I'm thinking of like, you know, the personal drivers to each of the actors and things like that. Does this also include like the people who are like, you know, driving the truck into the desert that has all the set pieces that have to be unloaded and all the lighting and the cameras. Is that is it really anyone who's driving a, a vehicle that's at all involved, or is it like the dri- the personal drivers to people? Uh, both. Uh, anyone who's driving a vehicle that is not a personal vehicle. Like if I was driving my own car to set that uh, that I wouldn't also be listed as a driver. But yeah, for <laughs> for anyone who is a teamster who basically is driving a motorhome, a uh, a grip truck, a craft services truck or any of the any of the vehicles that have to get to and from set every day uh, or driving the generator or whatever it is, like those are all people who are on as the drivers. And you're right, this is just the team of drivers for the New Mexico unit. It's not the ones in in California either. Like I know we see the Teamsters the Teamsters Union logo later. Those are a lot a lot of them are probably the Teamsters who are included in that exactly yep we also see during this that there are i think this might be just for the new mexico uh unit but there are two people listed as medics first aid people which especially when then almost immediately later we find out that there are three flame artists that doesn't seem like enough medics well like, flame artist just is, seems is like... not has nothing to do with fire <laughs> oh just okay so, you know. so what's a flame artist uh, a flame artist is a person who um works uh flame is a a computer program and what you do in, in post with Flame, that's something that oh, okay. you do to um, – gosh, I'm trying to remember what specifically Flame does. I think in the um, uh, – it definitely has a lot to do with the visual effects and stuff. And I want to say Flame helps with um, with the environment as far as like color correction and adding things to the environment as far as like, you know, if there's heat waves or or, you know – elements in the air that sort of stuff so um that's my recollection um it may not be completely accurate but it is definitely definitely a visual effect person okay that makes sense that makes sense so yeah i doubt i doubt the the first aid people need to get involved with with the flame people (laughs) i mean again only two medics for everything that's going on still seems kind of low but but fair enough yeah and and largely the first aid and medics i mean like on sets, uh, it's not so much. I mean, certainly there are times where, especially out in the desert, you know, they might be dealing with making sure, you know, treating snake bites or bug bites. But Dehydration a lot of it, yeah, stuff, exactly. Because yeah. not like people aren't always getting hurt. So a lot of it is like the first aid and medics are walking around with water bottles just saying, hey, do you need some more water and stuff like that? Just making sure people uh, and have a Band-Aid if, in case somebody gets a splinter. You know, it's, a, it's just like the very basics. But then they are there when somebody needs something a little more. I mean, yeah, especially whenever t- – anytime you see one of the, 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 the male heroes with that kind of like super sculpted shirt off chest, you know, often like there's a lot of dehydration that goes into that. You need to like get an IV after and stuff like that. So that makes sense. And then there's a whole thing listed as the third floor 
Yes. Including someone that is the previous supervisor. What 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 do those things mean? Well, the third floor is a company. Um, so so we're oh, getting okay. Yeah, so we're getting out of like the the kind of the specific people who are like working on set and everything. And and right before that, I, we should just say we have the Marvel Studios credits in there. And I, I want to talk about a few of the names in there, but we can we can circle back. Um, just just talking about the third floor. So the third floor does a lot of pre visualizations, and um, they're a company that I think. I want to say they started uh, with uh, Revenge of the Sith. I think that was their first film. And then really since then. And so pre-visualization, especially in the world of Marvel, is pretty much putting the film together beforehand so that so that people can figure out, you know what, that the shot's not quite right. Let's move the camera over here because we want to make sure we're showing this. And it's all about like creating digital it's almost like digital storyboarding is what it is. Mm, yeah. Okay. And especially in the world of CG, like they'll eventually like take that and some of it might get cleaned up and, and eventually turned into actual footage within the film. But oftentimes that stuff is, um, you know, pretty rudimentary just to try to figure out kind of positioning and everything. Oh, so pre- what I thought was previs, previs, because it's pre-visual. Yeah. Pre-visualiza- pre-visualization. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. That's good to know. Yeah. So they're, um, they were on this. And actually, if looking at their list of credits that they have done uh, since Star Wars Episode 3, just looking at, at Marvel stuff, they worked on Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. This film, Iron Man 2, they worked on Captain America First Avenger. They worked on The Avengers. Uh, they worked on Iron Man 3, Thor The Dark World, Amazing Spider-Man 2, uh, X-Men Days of Future Past, Guardians of the Galaxy, um, The Avengers Age of Ultron, Ant-Man. Uh, after Ant-Man, um, Captain America Civil War, Doctor Strange, that was actually the last thing that they worked on for Interesting. Marvel. And I'm guessing in terms of like kind of an insider Hollywood stuff, there's all sorts of stuff that goes in into, you know, whether a company like that, like th- does Marvel use third-party contractors like that or do they just develop their own previs studio or, you know, uh, that kind of thing? It, the, the challenge with developing like their own internal, and this is why most places will opt to just use stuff like these other companies that just specifically do this, because sure, I mean, you're going to keep a team busy for a while, but then there's a period where all of a sudden you're paying all these people and there's like three months of no work. It's like, you know, are you just going to have them sit around? Whereas they could be just working on a non-Marvel film for a while. Because, I mean, I was just going through that list of films. I mean, there were a lot of non-Marvel films that they had also been working on. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's the third floor. Cool. Let's let's I want to touch on a couple more of these visual effects companies that were involved and then jump sure. back to the Marvel Studios credit. So the next one after um, after the third floor is a company called Buff, B-U-F. Uh, Buff is a French company. And actually, they specifically they worked on all sorts of stuff. They worked on um, all the stuff in the kind of the space, the cosmos effect, as they call it. And so when we were talking last week with Paul about kind of all that flying through space and everything, that was them. They kind of created all that the trip through Yggdrasil, basically. Um, They worked on a lot of the Rainbow Bridge stuff, the Asgard Ocean, Heimdall's Observatory and the Bifrost. They did uh, CG actor doubles. They did the ice tree and the map of the universe. And then they did the observatory explosion and the prologue 
and end sequence. So um, they were involved quite a bit. And I, I, I would guess that part of the reason that they were so heavily involved is because at the end of this section of credits for them, it actually says that this film benefited from the French tax rebate for international production. I saw that. I, I saw a bunch of French looking names. I was trying to figure out why that all is. And yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. And in order to be eligible to get this tax incentive, I mean, you know, film productions, especially the big expensive ones, and this is why they filmed in New Mexico as well. They love these tax rebates because what happens is you pay all this money to film in a particular place or work in a particular country. And everything that's taxed, like you keep track of all of that, and then you get like some of that money back. So it actually ends up costing you less money to film in those places. And so because they were working with this company in France, and they had, you know, hundreds of French people working on it, they actually got some money back for uh, all the effects work. Right. That makes sense. Uh, so that's buff. Um, and then Digital Domain was the third one that pops up in this uh, minute. Digital Domain, that's the company that James Cameron actually started back in the um, oh, cool. late 80s, early 90s with with a lot of his stuff. And Right. Um, I like kinda, Terminator 2, especially, I think, is when you start to get like a lot of the kind of computerized effects that I, yeah. I think of, of T2 as kind of one of the first movies where the, the kind of CGI effects really were a, a really big part of it and were talked about a lot. Exactly. Right. And, and uh, it really kind of began... Um, funny, it, like right after T2, I think a lot of their development, um, came because of what he was doing in T2 and really his first film, um, that he used it with was True Lies, actually, his very next oh, film. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Um, cool. but yeah, and, and they were just a huge company. Um, they really, I think they hit some financial difficulties, um, after this film, I think they ended up getting sold and I don't know if they're still around or if they are completely gone now. Um, unfor uh, but um, no, I'm, I'm looking at credits uh, all the way up until uh, Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. They're still involved. So, Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, but they, uh, for this particular film, um, they were focusing a lot on, um, on Jotunheim and the, mm. uh, the um, Jotun beast. So that was kind of their primary focus on the movie. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about now some of the Marvel Studio people. Because I, I remember when I brought the accountants and clerks, I sort of was saying, well, because you wouldn't put just like the executive assistants or the people who are just doing the office filing. But then, nope, I guess all the, the office workers are involved, too. So that's great. I'm, I'm glad they all get credits. Well, and it's definitely something that has shifted over the years. Like, you didn't used to credit all these people. Um, and I didn't want to specifically talk about, as as much as it's nice to have them in the credits, the ones that I was focusing on was actually what they list as the Marvel Creative Committee, because those okay. are the names that I think, when you see Marvel these days, like, this, these are like the people behind everything. And, and the, the four people are Alan Fine, Joe Quesada, Dan Buckley, and Brian Michael Bendis. Um, those four people are are very much kind of like big names kind of like the 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 uh, kind of executives behind right. everything overseeing what kevin feige does right um alan fine actually um had conflicts with kevin feige and has has left marvel um but he was i mean he was really kind of one of the top guys joe quesada is one of i mean he was one of the guys who i mean he had been a comic book artist for a very long time before moving into kind of this more business side of things, uh, which is uh, kind of where he, where he is now. And uh, Dan Buckley, 
Um, you know, I, I mean, president of Marvel Entertainment since January 2017. So definitely somebody who's, um, you know, ma- approving, signing all the big checks, making all the big decisions. And uh, Brian Michael Bendis, who is another uh, comic book writer and artist. Yeah, that's a name I know. And I don't know tons of these names. Right. Very, very big name. Uh, definitely involved in, in, you know, like House of M, Secret Invasion, Age of Ultron. Uh, so a lot of these big event storylines uh he was kind of involved in all of that and so yeah I, I think it's you know having names like this um you know they're strong names to kind of have behind uh kind of everything you know i think that's helpful to know because i i think sometimes especially in the more sort of like twitter twitch you know tiktok kind of universe you can get the impression that like for 20 years this has just been kevin feige playing with his action figures in an office <laughs> and deciding what everything's going to happen and my impression is that now feige has much more creative control than he did back when this movie was being made but even then like there's always people who are higher ups there's always someone else who has some some oversight and things like that so. yeah yeah and that was the team so yeah, there you go. nice all right well i think it's a good place to wrap up this minute yeah i think so cool well um thank you so much uh Normally, Andy, this is when I would ask our guests to promote their own stuff. Uh, do you want to do a quick The Next Reel promotion? I think we did that at the beginning of the minute. What's a good way to close out here? Yeah, you know, The Next Reel, uh, it is a film podcast. We talk about movies, and it's Pete uh, Pete Wright and I. We've been doing it, uh, gosh, uh, 11 years now, believe it or not. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, this has been a, a fun year for us, um, you know, starting with this current season that we're in, which started back in August of last year, um, every film that we're doing for this entire season, which is a full year, they're all directed by women. And so we've had um, a a great year of kind of exploring uh, different female directors and, uh, you know, in all sorts of genres. And so by the time this comes out, um, I don't know. Let's see. We'll probably be in our John Hurd series. Uh, John Hurd is, uh, you know, an actor from the 70s, 80s. Uh, I think he died a couple decades ago. But, um, you know, there's a good run of films that he had um, with some fantastic female directors. So, nice. um, yeah, so that's that's what we're up to. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, tune in the next dot com. You can find out what we're listening or what we're talking about. Yeah, I have to say, and this is a bit of a self-burn, I guess, but I I really appreciate listening to that because every now and then it reminds me that, right, there are people making movies that aren't from Marvel, DC, or Star Wars, or Star Trek, because I can get a little bit locked into those. Kind of, like, There's a lot of TV shows that I will watch that have nothing to do with the big franchises, but I think especially in movies... It, you know, I, I definitely think I can get a little bit kind of like focused on like, you know, the big budget, um, uh, big, you know, production company explored worlds things. And, and yeah, I really like there's a lot of stuff where I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's right. I haven't thought about the movie in a while. Or where like, you know, when my partner and I are looking for something to watch, I'll listen to what you guys are talking about. Be like, oh, yeah, I didn't even know these movies existed because it's. You know, and there's all of the questions we can get into about, I think just today there was yet another filmmaker saying DC and Marvel are ruining movie making. And I, I, I'm very much against that kind of nonsense, but I, but it's nice to be reminded, I think, that there's a lot of stuff outside the superhero genre. So uh, I really love what you guys do on that and Saturday matinee and some of the well, other thanks. things there. So thanks uh, to our fans. Thanks as always for listening. I definitely check out all the stuff that's happening on the next Real Family podcast. Check out my podcast it's on theethicalpanda.com. And most importantly, have a good day. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. 
And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. 